Hey everyone, it's Jeff from MCS Magazine, and I'm back on my mission to drag all of you gun owners out there kicking and screaming beyond the standard tactical thinking when it comes to using your firearm in self-defense. And onto the other battlefield that I feel so few armed citizens ever really consider, the courtroom. Now, trust me when I tell you that this interview is going to give you at least one tip that could potentially save you and your family from the financial and emotional devastation that comes from being forced to defend your actions in court if you're ever forced to use your weapon. Please, please, please take this subject seriously. And I know as you listen in, you'll see why I'm so passionate about this topic. All right? So... Let's go ahead and jump right in. If bullets were flying, your adrenaline surging, would you hit your target? If the world as you know it crumbled tomorrow, collapsed into chaos, would you know how to survive? If you and those you loved were cornered by a gang, violently attacked, could you protect them? Could you protect them? Could you protect them? Firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. As responsible gun owners, we often spend so much time preparing for an actual gun battle with range training that most people lose sight of another battle that can be nearly as life-ending the courtroom battle, after you've been forced to defend yourself with a firearm. Now, as we've said so many times before, the legal system is not about justice. It's about the law, plain and simple. And if you're ever forced to actually pull your trigger, even if it's for pure self-defense to save your life or the life of someone you love, you could quickly find yourself in a courtroom desperately trying to avoid being sent off to prison to live next to the very criminals you're protecting yourself from in the first place. And yet, it's this courtroom battle that so many gun owners fail to train for that could be your biggest threat, and the reason why we're here with this special broadcast. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson, editor for Modern Combat and Survival Magazine, with another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. And joining us today is my good friend and uh, somebody who's done extensive research, not only the tactics that you need to survive a deadly encounter, but also the strategies you must be aware of to survive a potential courtroom battle after defending yourself. Please welcome my buddy, Peyton Quinn. Peyton, thanks for talking to us today, man. Good to be here, Jeff. You're giving people information that's valuable and they they really need. Yeah, and are pretty much clueless on what I've found with talking a lot of people, even experienced people. So that's why I was so glad to get you on here. Listen, everyone, first of all, let me start by saying that Peyton is not an attorney. I'm not an attorney. We don't play one on TV. So we are not giving you legal advice. For that, you definitely want to seek out a licensed attorney. But I can tell you from experience that Peyton really is a a, a legend in the combatives industry. He would say a legend in his own mind, but <laughs> other people know that much, much better because he really has had an, he's had an influence on our industry that goes way beyond what most people will ever be able to influence an industry with because he's really dug deep into pioneering what we know what we now know as adrenal stress training. So this is a reality-based self-defense strategy that really takes a look at the physical things that happen in your body and how they affect you during a time of danger. You know, it's that fl- that fight or flight response. Now, he's produced several DVDs and books on these topics and runs several training camps each year. And you can find out more about his training and schedule at his website, 
www.stressshooting.com. Now, Peyton, I know that one of the biggest mistakes a gun owner can make before even getting to the courtroom is in how they'll, they'll basically weigh out their perceived innocence versus the prospect of being found guilty. Prosecutors use this to their advantage, and they can offer up what we you know, pretty much call a plea bargain that would seem even reasonable to the person that's getting it. So in your opinion, given that juries can be very unpredictable, is a plea bargain really your best ticket out of a long prison sentence? Well, first, of course, we're going to assume you're innocent. But uh, innocence is a legal concept. So you have to know the law to even know if you're truly innocent. That's something people have to grasp. Because you think you did the right thing does not mean a jury or a court or a district attorney will. Now, the district attorney's job performance is measured solely by his ratio of convictions to indictments. So as a real, as, as a general principle, the DA is going to offer a plea bargain at some time that will come up. Uh, the DA must speak to your attorney in regard to a plea bargain and not you directly about anything unless your attorney is present. If the charge begins as a felony and say, and let's say I was offered a misdemeanor plea bargain, I would probably take it. In other words, if I was charged with, um, uh, assault and battery of felony and they reduced it to disturbing the peace, well, I would take that. But when you plead guilty to a felony or are convicted of a felony, not only are you going to go to jail or prison for a year or more, could, could be 10 years, but you also lose some of your civil rights. Among these, the right to own a firearm. So uh, you need to consult with your attorney and find out what his uh, feeling is about your odds with a jury. In general, I will not take a plea bargain if I know that I can present the, that my attorney can present good evidence to my innocence of the particular charge. Uh, that's just me though. Um, also your attorney may be more willing to take a plea bargain than is good for you because, uh, uh, he doesn't, he's, he, he sees a limit to his, to his, to his liability in a plea bargain. Uh, in other words, you might get 20 years, but here's five years that you can get for sure. And he's not totally confident, uh, in going to court with the evidence he has. Remember this, the first person you must convince of your innocence is your own attorney. Why, why is that? Because I know a lot of people think, uh, I guess I've seen enough courtroom drama shows to see that, you know, enough guilty people going there. And it always seems like their defender is always, like, really going to bat for them. And it's almost like you know, they know you're guilty or don't even care that you're guilty. They're, they, I guess they have to give your best defense. But I always wonder how anybody could do that. That's why I could, I could never be in a, a lawyer myself because – if I know this scumbag is guilty, I can't imagine that I would give them a fair, you know, a fair defense for their for their trial. So, I mean, is it really important to to convince them that you're that you're innocent? It is, and right off the bat, because 
Remember, you're going to get a criminal defense attorney, not your local law, not your family lawyer. And most criminal defense attorneys realize that the overwhelming majority of the people they represent are guilty of something. It may not be the precise charge the DA has filed against them, and sometimes it is, but they're used to dealing with guilty people. So their tactics and strategy are predicated around uh, impugning evidence, uh, uh, putting out reasonable doubt to the jury, etc., rather than directly uh, telling, uh, explaining to the jury why you didn't do it. So, and you're just another case to most criminal defense attorneys, if you, especially if you're another guilty client. So you have to convince your attorney, here is what I did, here is why I'm not guilty of this charge, and that is what you must convince the jury. Yeah. But ultimately, it's your ass on the line. And, you exactly. know, I guess one of your points is that you really have to take responsibility for that. I mean, don't don't trust the prosecutor with a plea bargain that it's going to be in your best interest because they're assuming that, you know, most most people don't. I mean, if I'm looking at 20-year felony versus a plea bargain of a five-year felony, well, of course that sounds better, but you have to understand it's still a felony. You're not right. going to be able to vote. You're not going to be able to own a gun. You, you know, you're going to do five years. Maybe you won't do 20 years, but you are going to do five years, and it really comes down to you. Well, a, a large part of it is just making sure that you're doing the things that you're legally responsible to do when you're using gun in the first place, and I know it's a big part of your training too. But, you know, like Peyton, let's let's face it. I mean, there have been a lot of cases out there. We've all seen them in the news where an innocent man who defended himself with a legal firearm is arrested and forced to go to court to defend his actions, whether or not he's found guilty or not guilty. I mean, that's still that's still pretty uh, devastating to a family. And a majority of the stories that I read about end up with a man going free based on a jury's decision. That's a good thing. And I think most people assume that that's the way that it's going to turn out if they're in the right. So. Any jury of the peers seems like they're going to see the light and let you go. But how accurate do you feel like this thinking is? And, and how important is a jury to your freedom when standing trial in a courtroom? Well, I don't share that uh, view of juries, frankly. Hmm. I've talked with many DAs and some, some high-powered defense counselors. In fact, my brother is one. And they all acknowledge that half the case is decided when the jury is selected. And that's before any evidence or testimony is even heard. You, you see what I'm saying there? So many studies have shown juries are not really impartial. They can be persuaded, of course. But let's face it, they, you come in there and you're the defendant. The jury sort of assumes you must have been, must have done something or you wouldn't be there in the first place. Uh, so both the DA and your defense attorney know how important it is to get the people they want on the jury. So that shows you right there that juries are not really impartial. The DA won't take a case to trial if he thinks he hasn't got a decent chance of winning it. Remember, this comes back to his job performance, the number of indictments to the number of convictions. So if he brings a case and loses it, it's a mark against him. If he 
indicts too many people with too few convictions, he's probably going to be looking for another job down the road. Uh, so, so juries are sort of a, a roulette wheel. You're always taking a chance for the jury. They, they, they have their own prejudices, uh, their own experiences, et cetera, that sway their judgment. And indeed, the DA and your defense attorney knows that. And that's why he's trying to get the people he wants on the jury and exclude the people, uh, he does, he does not think will help his case. Both attorneys, for example, get two preemptory, uh, challenges. In other words, they can do, they can, say this guy's not on the jury and this guy's not on the jury or this woman's not on the jury. They get two people they can knock off the jury without any explanation. The rest, they have to convince the court that they shouldn't be on there and why. Uh, obviously, let's say just a simple DUI case. If you don't want two or three people on the jury who had family members or friends killed in a DUI accident, you see. Uh, you don't want somebody on the jury uh in a shooting case who uh is totally opposed to firearms and thinks they should only be owned by police or the military so uh this is why your lawyer is so important you need a lawyer who has tried at least a dozen cases and and better 20 that that are similar very similar to your case and won at least 75% of them Okay, we've been talking with Peyton Quinn of StressShooting.com about the most common mistakes gun owners make that could lead to a guilty verdict in a courtroom, even if you were legally justified in using lethal force. And we'll be back with more strategies in just a minute, including tactics for picking the best defense attorney to save you from going to prison, knucklehead mistakes that you're probably making right now without even knowing it that could be a nail in the coffin of your defense, and how the training you do now with your weapon can save or sink your defense. This and more all coming up right after this special message. Are you a proud defender of the Second Amendment? Are you tired of your whiny sister-in-law's liberal tantrums about the need for more gun control? <laughs> Are you infuriated with government gun grabbers trying to strip you of your God-given right to own a nuclear bazooka? Well, my fellow patriot... It's time for a Smackdown. Smackdown. In our free 2AD Smackdown debate guide, you'll discover how to win any gun control argument armed with three questions. That's right. Just ask these three simple questions and watch as that smug little smile disappears from their little face of even the most ignorant know-it-all liberal. Plus, you'll discover easy, fact-based, can't-lose, crybaby comebacks for the most common myths, misinformation, and outright lies. Like, gun shows are the criminal's flea market. Countries with tighter gun control have lower crime rates. Banning guns protects our children. More control keeps guns out of the hands of crazy people. And a whole lot more. Arm yourself now with the ultimate argument winner by claiming your free copy of 2AD Smackdown. Visit www.2adsmackdown.com. That's the number 2, adsmackdown.com. And now, back to our show. Okay, we're back with Peyton Quinn of StressShooting.com to discuss the critical steps you need to understand now about your legal responsibilities in a self-defense shooting. 
before you're forced to defend your actions in a courtroom. We have a lot more to get to, so let's pick back up with our interview now. You know, probably the first thing that goes through an armed citizen's mind after the cuffs get slapped on, right, you know, after you're forced to use your gun in self-defense is, why is this happening to me? I didn't do anything wrong. That's what I know. I'm going to keep thinking when the cops say, turn around, sir, and show your wrists. You know, why is this happening to me? But the second thing that I imagine going through someone's mind is, who's going to prove that I didn't do anything wrong? So what is, what's the worst mistake that someone can make when it comes to finding an attorney? And what specific cr- criteria should someone look for in finding a lawyer that they can trust to get them free and avoid going to prison for defending themselves? Well, it, it's going to take some research. But fortunately, you know, we live in this computer age. And virtually every licensed attorney in your state can be found online. And they will have their pitch there. They want your business, of course. And you do not, uh, so you could find, you can say, let's say you're charged with felony menacing. Remember, you don't have to shoot somebody or even fire a shot to find yourself charged with a crime that can send you to prison. Felony menacing is, for example, a person, uh, there's some sort of conflict, and I pull out my gun and say, stay back. Well, now I've threatened him with a firearm. That's felony menacing. Uh, so you not only have to know, you know, when it's lawful to shoot or not shoot, but you have to know whether it's lawful to even present your weapon as deterrent. So let's say that I uh, was charged with felony menacing. I would go online. That's a criminal defense attorney. I'd look at Colorado criminal defense attorneys. Uh, and I would find one who had represented several felony menacing cases and won most of them, you see. You can do that online now. And it's, it's a big, uh, improvement over the old days when you just had to ask, ask other attorneys, friends, et cetera, et cetera. Because you can, and do not hesitate to ask your attorney specific questions. He is working for you. You are hiring him. You are paying his fee. So don't be uh, at all hesitant to say, how many cases of my type have you represented? How many have you won? How many have you lost, et cetera? That's a real, that's a really good point because it can be very intimidating, especially when you know, your butt's in the chair and your, you know, your life is on the line and it's such a, it's such an uncharted area for those of us. I mean, we're not used to being our own legal representation. So it's easy to be really afraid and just assume that that lawyer that walks through the door in the meeting room at the jail knows everything and is, he's the person who's, I mean, just like kind of turn, please help me. I turn my life over to you. It really <laughs> is an interview process. Uh, they're not all Perry Masons, and uh, <laughs> the the quality of legal attorneys varies greatly. It really does. So you have to uh, look at their track record and uh, their performance. Also, remember, don't withhold information from your attorney, even if it doesn't make you look that good. Uh, because, but first. Anything you tell your attorney is privileged information. He can never be compelled to reveal anything you told him. And if you hold something back from your attorney, 
the DA may have may know about it or have evidence, and now your attorney gets a surprise right in the middle of the 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 trial if it comes to a trial. And so, just uh, give your attorney full disclosure. Don't don't worry about well, yeah, we had this row back in a few years ago or something like that, you know, uh, because you're leaving a, la- a potential landmine for yourself, and nothing you tell your attorney can he reveal to anyone. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, people really need to understand that when you're on trial for murder, even if it's a legitimate self-defense shooting, it's not just everything that you've said after your arrest that can be used against you in a court of law. It's also everything that you said prior to your arrest. Now, you and I have talked about this before, and I think it's one of those areas that, that most people just really just don't get, even people who are experienced gun owners out there. So what character mistakes do you see people make that could be entered into a courtroom and really sabotage their chances of an innocent verdict? And, and then what's the solution? Well, Jeff, I think this is the number one mistake people make. It is absolutely the number one mistake. What they say at the scene of the incident to the reporting officer. First understand, the law does not compel you to say anything or answer any questions the police at the scene put to you. Uh, you have the right to remain silent. In fact, we've all seen people being Mirandized on television, all right? <clears throat> uh, here's a classic case that I'll run through quickly that really uh, shows how you can convict yourself at the scene. And remember, the police, well, some of them want to be detectives, you see. So they, you know, a lot of them actually, I mean, it's natural and there's nothing wrong with that. But they they become detectives by getting information out of people at the scene or in the police car, et cetera, uh, by baiting them to get information. I, I'll quickly go through the hockey dad case because I think this just really uh, illuminates what I'm talking about in terms of how you convict yourself by something you say to the reporting officer at the scene of the incident. And from there, there's no way back. Uh, very quickly, uh, this, uh, this dad takes his kid to the hockey, to the hockey game. Kid's about 13. He complains when he's watching the hockey practice that, uh, there's high sticking. High sticking is when the end of the stick is used as a, sort of a weapon to hit the helmet of the uh, opposing player and it sort of make it look like an accident. The hockey dad complained about this. He goes, hey, what about this high sticking? The hockey coach says, hey, this is hockey. That's not satisfactory to the dad, so he removes his kid from the game. The hockey coach verbally berates him as he does this. Uh, he is asked by a person in authority in the place where the hockey uh, practice is occurring to wait outside for his kid. That uh, person in authority later testified he saw that the hockey uh, coach was getting kind of red-faced and angry and he was afraid there might be an incident. So the hockey dad complies and goes outside and 
waits for his kid to come out of the dressing room in its regular clothes. Time is distorted under adrenal stress. And, you know, when a, a father's kid's under, feels is in danger or abused, it's going to be an adrenal flow for sure. So while the hockey dad is waiting outside for his kid to come out, it seems like it's taking a long time for him to come out. So the hockey dad goes back into the uh, building to see what's, why his kid hasn't come out. The hockey coach then comes off the ice with his skates and, and everything else and, and gets in a verbal match, verbal uh, abuse thing with the hockey dad and then kicks him with his skates and the hockey dad defends himself, punches the 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 uh, hockey coach, hockey coach falls dead on the spot. Okay, the police come, and the police look at the dead hockey coach, and the cop says, "Hey, looks to me like you outweigh this guy by eighty pounds." Now here it comes. The hockey dad says, "Hey." He wasn't afraid of me, and I wasn't afraid of him. Bingo. He's lost his entire uh, basis for a self-defense claim. Because in order to use force, to defend, in order for violence, whether it's lethal violence or less, to defend yourself uh, against an attack, you have to be in fear of your life or gross bodily injury. Well, if he, if he says, he wasn't afraid of me, and I wasn't afraid of him. He's admitted that he was not afraid of gross bodily injury or death from this guy. So his right there, his self-defense claim evaporates. And all the evidence, of course, some the jury cannot hear. It's inadmissible that the hockey uh, coach who died uh, had several felony convictions for assault and battery, that that's not admissible because the case is to be cited on its merits alone, not what the guy did in the past. There are some exceptions to that for rape, but that's not uh, relevant here. Uh, also, a medical examiner said the hockey coach had an embolism, a brain embolism, that would probably have killed him eventually anyway. But, and that the blow would not normally have been fatal to a person without this, uh, pathology, this brain embolism. None of it mattered because the judge said, if you find, the judge instructions to the jury, if you find that the hockey dad was not in fear of his life or gross physical injury, then you must find him guilty of, see what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, the jury had to, the DA hammered at this. He said he wasn't afraid. He, you see what I mean? At the scene. Well, he, the hockey dad was found guilty, sent to prison. And I believe, studying the case pretty carefully, the only reason he was sent to prison was a statement he made at the scene of the incident where he said he wasn't afraid of me and I wasn't afraid of him after being baited by the police officer uh, to say that. That's why the, that's why the cop said that, 
to elicit some sort of admission like that. To the hockey dad, he was thinking, uh, he was under stress and he was thinking, uh, it was a fair fight. You see? Yeah. But, uh, now that's not the way the law saw it. What are some other things? Um, I know, well, well, let's, you know, stick with that. So what's the, the police show up, you, you feel you were totally justified. I mean, you know, just what, very quickly, what is the best way to respond to the police when they show up? Well, every attorney is going to tell you without exception, every defense attorney, say nothing, uh, co-op, uh, uh, be polite, uh, show your identification if demanded, but then simply say, uh, I don't think I should say anything about what's occurred here. They say anything until I'm represented by a, by my attorney. Now, I can't really argue with that. And the reason the defense attorneys say it is because if you don't say anything, then you can't make the hockey dad mistake. You can't put any problems before the trial even starts. Also, you, you, since you have no legal obligation to talk to the police, you do not have to answer their questions. And you do have the right to demand an attorney before you are interrogated. This cannot be used against you. In other words, they can't say, and isn't it true, you you said you wouldn't say anything to your attorney got, uh, so you had an attorney because he knew you were guilty, didn't you? No, that can't be uh, said by the DA or assistant DA. That would be a mistrial. You could never be held, it could never be held against you in court for exercising your legal right to remain silent. So I, I, I have to go basically with what the defense attorneys say because, and that is just say, uh, I'm pretty upset now. Uh, I don't want, I don't think I should say anything until um, my attorney is present. Well, and also one thing we talked about um, before and on the, the Bulletproof DVD is that it can be to your benefit, though, to it, to say one thing. Yes. See, in my case, I've been in stressful situations. I'm not – I'm pretty confident I'm not going to blurt out something that will convict me like the hockey dad. So, and I would never use violence against anyone unless there was a absolute necessity and a reason. So I would – articulate that to the responding officer, but probably just one sentence and then I'd invoke my right to remain silent. For example, if uh, the guy attacked me with a knife or a stick, I'd point out the stick. He was going to kill me for sure. Look at that knife he's got. Look at that stick. Okay. Now, let's suppose he had the, the ni- a knife on his hip, you know, an external knife and that was... I would still say, look at that knife he's got on his hip. He was going to use it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So anything you say should be limited to one sentence before you invoke your right to remain silent, and it should support why or get or point out evidence as to why a reasonable person would believe they were in danger of serious bodily injury or death, a weapon. Even the size guy. Look at the size of that guy. He was—he would have killed me for sure. You see what I mean? Yeah, something to show that I was afraid for my life. Exactly. Precisely. Basically, uh, giving them the assumption that you were—you were in fear for your life, and that's why you used 
force. Yes, that's the idea. Yeah. But, and but see, a defense attorneys say don't even say that because they they're afraid you'll say more than that and hang yourself. Yeah. Stop there. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Plant the seed and then stop there. And and it's important to know. And you've I've seen you write about this before. Is that police officers, if they're involved in a fatal shooting? they're automatically put on administrative leave. I mean, they're basically told to shut up for, right. for what is it, 48 hours, like Correct. mandatory or something like that. Almost every department, well, every department I've ever had an experience with, the rule was the officer would not even be questioned Yeah. until 48 hours after the incident. Yeah, good point. Here's where here's where I always like to bring it into, um, because, you know, we talked about what you say at the, at the scene of the incident, but... You know, when you go out on forums and blogs and things like that, you see a lot of this bravado out there. I mean, oh. the gun owners are known for having kind of that, you know, that patriotic, you know, kill them all, let God sort of sort of an ego. <laughs> that will not serve you. <laughs> and it's one of the things that I just pull my what's left of my hair that I pull out constantly about what I read, even in our own blog and everything. So I know you've talked about this before, but so what are some of those outside the courtroom factors that? people aren't considering that could be pulled into court well, to be able to use against the, them. The, uh, the courts have decided that anything you posted online is admissible, you see? And, and so a DA might very well assign somebody uh, to go look at any forums you're in, et cetera, and what you might have said there. So be very careful what you say online. For example, I mean, if you, uh, let's say you shot an intruder in your front lawn or whatever, and then the, the assistant DA or the DA comes up and, uh, at deposition before it even goes to trial, says, isn't it true that you said on this date that in the, uh, shoot them all, let God sort them out for them? Uh, if those bastards ever showed up at my place, I'd blow them to pieces with my shotgun. Now, see, that's not going to serve you. That's going to be hard to, uh, to get past. Uh, so, if you put things like that online, think about it, you might want to go back and delete them if possible. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You have a Facebook page and it's like, you know, you see a news story about how a home invader was shot by the owner and, you leave a comment that says, you know, thank God, one less scumbag roaming our street. <laughs> it, that, yeah. uh, you know, any behavior engaged in, yeah. anything you say, you have to ask yourself first, does this behavior serve me? And no, it doesn't. Well, and, and also, I mean, people need to look at things like bumper stickers on your car. You know, yeah. if you've got like the, the NRA bumper sticker and then the kill them all that got them God sort them out bumper sticker and, you know, um, this, what is it, this car security system armed by Smith & Wesson, things like that that make We don't look dial 911. We don't dial 911 uh, on the front no, door. Uh, yeah. Passengers exactly. will be shot. Survivors will be shot again. Yeah, Definitely it, don't want that stuff. Exactly. So people really need to pay attention to that. <laughs> you know, Peyton, training is one of those courtroom dilemmas that I think a lot of people have a lot of mis misinformation on. In other words, you know, some people may feel like it's if, if it's brought up that you train a lot at the range that you could be seen as some gun nut who was really just itching for the chance to shoot someone. 
But on the other hand, if it's shown that you didn't really train hardly at all with your weapon, then you really weren't prepared for using it to defend yourself. And therefore, you know, you could be guilty by ignorance. So what would you say is the big training mistake that gun owners make that could hurt them in a courtroom? I think really most of the firearms training that the state demands, say, for your CCW, in most states, I, I really think it's not adequate. Because mine mine it, was horrible. Mine, I mean, I left there one like afraid that the other people in my classroom were going to have. <laughs> I understand. It was horrible. What, what what would you say the main thing it was lacking? Well, I'll tell you exactly what it was. Um, because they the the instructor cut out the legal portion. You know, so, so there might, he might have had planned, like, let's say two hours of the course on your legal responsibility to use a firearm. The things that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. He cut that out so that he could, at the beginning of the, of the presentation, go over why your Second Amendment rights, uh, why you need to fight for your Second Amendment rights. And oh, there was all this extra material that he brought into the course himself to show, like, you know, here's why they'll they'll have to pry my gun out of my cold, dead uh, hands, uh, that's you know? totally. Uh, and then once we, because it was a, I believe, four-and-a-half-hour course, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was four or four-and-a-half hours here in Texas, but anyway, you know, we were running out of time because we had so much conversation about Second Amendment rights, and so he's like, oh, well, we have to get to this stuff, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to breeze through these slides. All of a sudden, do-do-do-do-do-do. Oh yeah, and uh, by the way, you can't take it in these these buildings, and and um, oh yeah, you can't pull out your gun. Oh yeah, da-da-da. so we we breezed right through all of the legal stuff to make sure that we knew that we could, you know, we had to fight for our Second Amendment rights. Ironically, the fastest way to lose your Second Amendment rights is to pull out your gun and commit a felony because you didn't know what your legal responsibilities were in a shooting. Right, so, and a lot of people don't realize that the existence of the charge felony menacing in some places is called brandishing. You do not have to fire, even fire your gun, and you can still be charged with a felony of threatening someone with a deadly weapon, felony menacing. Yeah. Well, what you're talking about is, that's a, to me, it strikes me as a really irresponsible. Very case. irresponsible. In fact, I gave everybody a copy, copy of our bulletproof, Defense DVD leaving there because I thought, and it was in the parking lot. I was like, hey, guys, come over here. Look, it's free. Here, take it. (laughs) Please. Uh, I think most of the state firearms courses, and I've looked at a a couple of them, more than a couple of them, but mostly out here in the West because that's where I am. And, And most of the firearms courses are really just marksmanship and gun safety. Yeah. That's not enough. You have to be able to make that decision present or don't present under stress and then that terrible decision of shoot or don't shoot under stress and you have to know the law i mean you have to have this in your head such that it's second nature such that immediately you realize what your jeopardy is and how you need to address it you can't hesitate sometimes yet <laughs> If you jump the gun, you could be jumping into prison. Yeah. The criminal element always has that advantage because he initiates the situation. So he, so that's a difficult thing. And training should simulate the actual event for it to be uh, effective, for it to uh, work in the field. 
what do you mean by that? Like how how what is the the criteria kind of for like well, how you can a lot of people it? think a lot of people they shoot at targets, right? Shooting at paper targets and they're using the sights of the gun. But in reality, very, very few people are going to be able to aim the gun at a shootout. Most shootouts occur in the dark. That's one thing. So the whole paradigm, the model on which precision shooting and marksmanship doesn't really apply too much to an actual shooting, which happens, which most happen inside of seven feet and in a low light. But the main thing is the stress. You may be able to aim and pull trigger squeeze and breath control and all like that at the range, but you're not going to be able to do any of those things if someone is trying to kill you or seriously injure you or a family member. And that's the only time you would actually be using a gun in a self-defense situation. So the one thing you can count on in a real situation where you must defend yourself or your family is that surge of adrenaline that's going to confuse your judgment, uh, lose fine motor control, uh, tunnel vision, auditory exclusion, you don't hear things. You see, remember, even Wild Bill Hickok shot his own deputy during a gunfight, thinking he was one of the assa- other assailants. Uh, yeah, so you've got to deal with that adrenal stress. And training should, I, I just know, training must involve uh, a simulation, a scenario where you're put under some adrenal stress. And people may not think that's possible, but I can absolutely tell you it is. It, the adrenal flow is not involuntary. That's all there is to it. If you present the right cues, boom, you'll get that adrenal flush. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that in person when, when I've trained out at your facility, and that's what you like. I mean, you, you get the force-on-force training. You get the, you know, you you get to not only just know about your legal responsibilities, but you need to, you, you're able to put those, those decisions of present or don't present, shoot or don't shoot into actual force on force scenarios in a safe environment that, that allows you to, first of all, know what those are so that you are making the right decisions. But then also, if you do have to defend yourself, and I guess this goes back to, you know, what my question was, which is if you can show that you've taken training, like in mm-hmm. order to be responsible with your weapon and not just be able to get that one-inch shot group from 15 yards away so that you can kill, get those scumbags off the streets. Well, most, well, okay, you're, yes, it's, the DA is not as likely to, he knows that's a double-edged sword too, just as you point out. So he's not likely, uh, too likely to uh, bring up the fact that, hey, he went to the range a lot, because that could be taken either way. Right. But what he will definitely bring up is something like if you used your own hand-loaded ammunition in your gun, that definitely identifies you as a gun nut. And he'll say, and when you got that concealed weapons permit, you looked at it as a hunting permit, didn't you? You see what I mean? In fact, you loaded that ammunition with the most deadly uh, rounds possible. They're meant to tear a man's guts out. What you want to be able to respond to is, no, sir, I did not. I loaded my weapon with the same ammunition our state police use, and for the same reason. Yeah. You can't yeah, but, do that if you hand load your ammunition. Right. I mean, you can hand load ammunition to work up a load for a rifle, even a pistol, but don't use it in your self-defense weapon. Use factory ammunition, the same as the cops use in right. your area. Right. But 
But if you can also show, like, like they're going to go, like the DA is going to go off of information that he thinks he might be able to serve as a solid foundation. Like, you know, you know, being a being a a, a an, an educated and trained firearms owner, I'm sure you're familiar with the tooler drill that says that yeah. if your attacker was is within 21 feet. Then you know that's if he's outside of 21 feet, then he's not a threat to you. Well, you're familiar with that, aren't you? You, of course, we do it in every class. Right. You bring up a very good point there, uh, and that is strengthening your legal defense before an incident ever happens, because anything you learned or knew before a legal incident, an actual shooting incident or violent incident occurs, is admissible in court in your defense. So you mentioned what's called the Tuller drill. Uh, that shows that, well, you know, we do this at RAMCAD, stress shooting. From 26 feet away, a person can draw a knife, run, charge you, before most people can draw their gun and stop them with with their fire. So uh, since you knew that, the DA is, the DA is not going to say, he was 20 feet away, and he only had a knife, and you had a gun. The DA won't fall into that trap because in depositions, that's before you go to trial or before he decides what he's going to charge you with, if anything, yeah. he'll know that you had that knowledge that a person that far away can, could kill you. Yeah, that's, 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 uh, that's a very good point. Well, um, and, and you're being very kind. <laughs> Because at our, you know, at our training that we did with, uh, you know, at your, at your stress shooting course, um, you know, we were showing 20, you know, um, I'm sorry, 50, 60 feet away with yeah. an open carry, you know, just slightly concealed weapon. I mean, it's, I would say that, you know, you could prove just with your own training and everything that somebody could be as far away, depending upon the person, 70, 80, even 90 feet away. And be able to, you know, because once they start charging at you and you get that adrenal rush, then you're all thumbs, right? Like then you're trying to get underneath your clothing, get to your get to your weapon, rack <laughs> yeah. the slide or whatever. You know, people, you're... you probably saw people even drop fumble and drop their guns to the mat. Oh yeah, yeah. just totally give up. And you know, you to your credit, you put into there. Like some people were like, okay, they're getting stabbed two times, three times, five times, and like, okay, I get it, I, I give up. And you're like, no, you don't give up. Never stop because fighting. you might get stabbed three, four, five times. You know, you but, have to. Well, be able we did to... show the solution too, and it's if you can keep your head. Yeah. You know, uh, and that's simply you know stepping off the attack line at the last few seconds before it can change its uh, direction. Yeah, that's what I mean by training must simulate the real thing, because that's the only way you're going to see the real problems. Uh, how fast can you deploy your gun? Under stress, you you might fumble it, but if you've had had to do these things in training under adrenal stress, you know the problems, and you can begin to address them and, and eliminate them. Yeah. But the idea of uh, <clears throat> increasing your bank of knowledge about shooting incidents and the reality of firearms and terminal ballistics, well, all that becomes admissible in court if you learn it before an incident occurs because it's knowledge you had when you when the incident occurred before the incident occurred you knew this that and the other thing so it could have entered, it could have entered your decision making process that makes it admissible in court and the more of that information you have the stronger 
your defense is going to be and the less attractive you are to prosecute for a DA. Because there's a thing called depositions. Before you go to trial, you, with your attorney present, you'll sit at a table with a DA and he'll ask all these questions. And then a person, a stenographer, will be recording it all and then you'll read it later and sign off on it. And in deposition, they will discover, oh, you took this course, you knew this, you knew that, you knew the other thing. You knew you knew that one or two bullets usually does not stop a person instantly, etc. That could have been a, so that makes your case less attractive to the DA because all that stuff can come out at trial and he knows that. Yeah. So yeah. that's where he goes to plea bargain now. Like I said, I don't, I'm not going to plead guilty to a felony if I know, I know under the law I wasn't guilty. I'll just have to go take my chance to the jury. Yeah. yeah. And a very good lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, we've, uh, we've covered a lot of stuff. And obviously, um, you know, as we end up with the training portion of it, um, obviously that's not the type of training that's, that's found in a lot of places out there. It's, you might even find potentially some force on force, but nothing that really prepares you uh, systematically for being able to recognize and use that adrenal rush to your advantage and, and being able to overcome it with with tried and true practical tactics. So um, that's what I love most about about Peyton's uh, training course. I've been through it. I've taken a bunch of um, our people through it. We're going to be planning some other some other training um, sessions out there as well. Um, because everybody that went through that, we're talking about military contractors, uh, people in the FBI, experienced gun owners, people who are very, very accurate with a handgun, but they all say that this was the best training that they've taken, and there's a reason for that. So I definitely want everybody to go and check out Peyton's website. It's over at www.stressshooting.com. Check out his training calendar. Find out when the next course is. Everybody I talked to about this course is just they start drooling with like, oh, my God, that's that's exactly what um, I need. That's what I've been looking for. So um, so definitely they don't happen all that long throughout the year, so you definitely want to make sure you get it on your calendar and start preparing now to head out to the beautiful mountains of Colorado. Colorado. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Peyton, thanks so much. I really appreciate all the time that you spent with us today. And, um, Thank you, Jeff. This, yeah. As I said, people – Responsible gun owners need to know this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, everybody, go check out StressShooting.com. And until our next broadcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying train hard, stay safe, prepare now. Modern Combat and Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.